So today, this is, we're, we're talking today about, as we enter into the New Testament, we talk, we've been, you know, the last couple of weeks, the birth of Christ, the Magi, uh, the announcement, the birth, you know, we've been through all of that, the shepherds, and today we are, we're in an unusual story in the New Testament. It's unusual because it's, it's the only one of its kind in all of the Gospels, of the four Gospels, it's the only story that relates anything about the boyhood of Jesus Christ. Now, there are, in, the, in the, what we call apocryphal books, apocryphal books are books that were rejected by the first and second and third century church leadership as being extra biblical. In other words, they were not they were not part of Scripture. They didn't consider them to be part of Scripture. They didn't. They weren't written by the apostles, the prophets. A lot of times, they had the names of Thomas, or they had they had names, but they didn't accept them as being authentic because they were written after the time of the apostles. You know. So, and there's you know. So in those books, there's some unusual stories about the boy Jesus and things that. That he supposedly did, which were seem out of character, but were amazing. You know, where he he <laughs> there was a pool of water, and and as a child he was playing. He split the pool of water like the Red Sea, you know. And uh, and so one of the other kids who was playing with him took a, took a stick and made it undo. So he he caused that child to wither and die. Doesn't seem very Christ-like to me, but you know. Uh, but here we have, here we have, <laughs> in relation to the, to the, to the apocryphal stories, and the, I mean, these, these extra biblical stories outside of the canon, uh, this is kind of, this is kind of a mundane story about the boy Jesus. And it's the only glimpse that we have between the manger and him beginning ministry, is we have this glimpse of of Jesus at 12 years old. So it's, it's not just a glimpse of Jesus, it's a glimpse you know, of a 12-year-old of his parents. You know, and 12-year-olds can, can vary a lot. You can have a 12-year-old that's real emotionally mature, and seems to be at least, and you can have a 12-year-old that's very childlike. That's, for that matter, you can have a 20-year-old that's very childlike, but that's a, that's a whole other matter. How old, Chris, how old are you? Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Cheap shot, wasn't it? <laughs> he, he appreciated that. Okay. So, so this, is a, this is just an interesting story about the, the boy Jesus and, and what, what does it mean? Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, uh, which would have been an interesting thing that they would have taking the journey to go from Nazareth to the temple. That was the, really the only way in that time to celebrate the Passover. When this Passover was originated in Exodus, it was celebrated in the house. But it became a temple celebration where they went to the temple because they had a temple. They went to the temple, and since all the Jews gathered together to the temple, and they just had this huge Passover celebration once a year where they would, you know, uh, sacrifice 
thousands upon thousands of lambs for this Paschal celebration. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. But supposing him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives, relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. I'm sure in a panic, right? Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Kind of a unique story in it. The boy Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. He and his mama, you know, kind of have uh, an argument, right? She says, son, what have you done? He's like, hey, I had to be about my father's business. Uh, kind of ends the argument when you pull the I'm the son of God card, right? Uh, <laughs> so uh, now here's, here's a couple of things I like about the story. Here's a couple of things that I pick up from this. One is that you, it looks like if you look through the life of the, these events, that Joseph and Mary are doing their best to live their faith in God authentically, which I think is so important. Is they're doing their best to live their faith authentically. We know that in Luke chapter 21, just a few verses before this, that when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus. So they took him to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day. That was the normal Jewish custom. Jewish male had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Also, after 33 days, there was a purification rite for Mary, and there had to be a sacrifice offered for every firstborn male. Every firstborn male, there was a sacrifice offered for every male that broke through the womb. And so they went 33 days later and made a sacrifice there. And when the days for her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which shows that based on the offering, this offering, they were poor probably poor because there was an option in the law. There's an option in the law. You could offer a, a lamb, but if you were poor, you could offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so they did that. They were poor. Now the Passover involved 
uh, an eight-day festival. It was one day of the Passover celebration where they gathered in the temple and everybody, you know, did the this. So you've got all the all the Jews that can come together in Israel are coming together at the temple for this one big giant celebration. Thousands and thousands of people. Uh, they say that probably at the Passover there was in Jerusalem there would be an extra. 180,000 people that would be in the temple. Jerusalem was not a huge city of the day. That's like taking the city of Jerusalem and that was probably a population of 25 to 50,000 and making it four or five times bigger over a couple of days. So traffic, you know, you know, there'd be a donkey accident over on I-5. So, so, you know, you can imagine this is a big deal. And so it's there, so every year they're doing this. This is like a this is like a family event. They're going to the temple celebrating the Passover. That's a one-day event. And then there is the feast of weeks, or the feast of unleavened bread that follows, and it's seven days. So they would be in Jerusalem for seven days. So you think about it, it's two days to get there in a journey with a gr- group of people. And you know, it's I'm sure the roads are crowded, lots of people going to Jerusalem. Then two days back. So it looks like, I mean, I, you just see this in the life of, of Mary and Joseph. It looks like people who are trying to follow what they consider, they know to be the law of God. They're trying to live an authentic, godly life. And that's important. One of the hardest jobs you'll ever do uh, is to pass your faith to your children. It's almost impossible. It's not impossible, but it is a challenge because it's very seldom accomplished with lukewarm, wishy-washy, or halfway committed faith. Usually, if you have that kind of a faith, you have a kind of Christianity that is off and on and not consistent, about all it will do is inoculate your children to the truth. Because it's hard enough to actually convey truth to them if you're really, really serious about following Christ. It's hard to convey it to the next generation. It's hard to convey what you feel in your heart and bring it to a place where they understand it and they respond in faith to Christ in the same way. That it's just not a transmitted as you know, a secondary faith. Oh, I believe because my parents believe. Believing because your parents believe is not belief. You have to believe because you believe. There's no, there's no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. There's only children. There are only those individuals who have personally accepted Christ as their Savior and Lord. That is the challenge to personally accept Christ as, as your Savior and Lord. So to convey that to your children is sometimes different. It will be a, a challenge. It means that your faith, if you're going to convey your faith, it needs to be something positive. Right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? Joyful, even. You know, can you imagine them saying, well, it's time to go to the temple again. Twelve days, I won't get to work. You know, Joseph's like, I've got so much to do. I got got work piled up here, and I, I don't have time. To take 12 days off without pay to go to the temple. 
I mean, that could, but you know, so how do you convey the joy, the joy of this, the joy of the life of faith, the vibrancy of the life of grace, of, of faith, to demonstrate the things that are important to you with joy and life and vibrancy. Because, you know, you, you can get up on Sunday morning and this can be the biggest drag in your life. Obligation, duty, just, uh, or it can be a joy. You know, I, I, as I look back, you know, because, gosh, you know, I've been here a long time. I've been doing this a long time. I look back in my life at people who have been able to convey their faith to their kids. One of the characteristics you see is a joy about serving God. It doesn't mean that they serve God perfectly. No one's serving God perfectly. I'm not serving God perfectly. But there was a joy about knowing God and following God and a willingness to put God first. You know, I, th- I think about, I'm, they just catch my eye because they're here today and they're, because they're here every day. We have church. Harold and Miriam Moore. Oh, they're like, oh, they said our names. <clears throat> Uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how long, I can't remember how long Harold and Miriam have been coming to church. It's 20 years or something like that. Right? Something like that. They probably missed church 10 times. <laughs> really, seriously. They... they they don't miss church. I'm, I'm not saying that that's the secret that you, can, you have to not miss church. Uh, but, I mean, you only, you only come that much as if you want to. There's a want to. There's, in other words, so that want to, the, a, a genuine want to then is pervasive. I grew up in a situation that's exactly the way Harold and Miriam grew up, is that they had to be at church way more times than we have church. My parents, we went to church at least three or four times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And if there was anything else, anything else that was happening, we were there. And here's the, I mean, here's the thing with my folks, and I think here's what you have to do. They, I never felt like it was a negative thing. It wasn't like, oh, we got to go to church tonight. It's Wednesday night and I want to go. Let's stay home and... You know, and I'm sure that I'm sure they felt that. I'm sure they felt that. Time. No one is always excited about showing up. It's like the guy who got up and told his wife, "said I'm not going to church today. Nobody likes me there. I don't like them. I'm not going." His wife said, "Honey, you have to go. You're the pastor." So we want to, you know, so we want to, we want, if we're going to do this job well, that it seems like Mary and Joseph, you know, they saw it's part of their job is that we want to live our, we live, want to live our faith with vitality and life and joy, consistency, consistency, I think is important. Uh, being, trying to be consistent with all your heart. Uh, what's important. You have, you have to focus on what's important. It's in, attendance being, being here is important. Community. I, I, I want to be here because I want to see I want to see people. So that's that's a value. And you also, it means 
that if you're going to put God first in your life, you're going to dial back some of the things that you really, really like to do and sacrifice some things to the degree you're not going to do them to the degree that you would like to do because you're, you're demonstrating what is the most important thing in your life. What's the most important thing in your life? It should be God. It should be the family of God. It should be community. And sports are important. Right? And I mean, all this, I mean, there's, there's just all this stuff. There's a lot of challenges for your time. When you have children, then you get them involved in baseball or soccer or any, just here's the thing. Everything we do today, we overdo it. Or we tend to. So sometimes you might have to actually demonstrate that, hey, for, for our family, this is really important to us. We really love playing baseball. We really love doing this. But hey, we're not going to do this bit of supreme select heavy duty tournament, grade A. We're not going to do this division this time because it's taking away too much time from us being at church. And all of those things are important. And that's the challenge. The challenge of being a parent is, is to determine what is important and what's really important. I think, it, so it seems like to me, as, I, as, I, as you just look at Mary and Joseph, that they were willing to, that they were doing that. They were making the sacrifice to put the things of God first in their life, and they were training the Son of God in that. And when he became 12, they went up from there according to the custom of the feast, and, and as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. But supposing him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among the relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Now, so this lets me see something that I think about this is that uh, Jesus must have been awfully responsible, which, I mean, you would kind of expect that, right? Like he's going to be like really responsible because they didn't even think about him. They weren't even concerned about him. They just assumed that he was with them. And, you know, so here's a heads up. Always make a count <laughs> before you start off on the journey. I bet they never did this again. And I bet every one of you, maybe not every one of you, but how many of you, let me ask this, how many of you have left a child at church? And... <laughs> Because I have, I mean, I've done it. So, uh, it's you know, I mean, or you, it's in sometimes in the busyness of life, it's easy to get distracted or think the other person, you know, you came in different cars, you think, oh, I, I thought she went home with dad, or I thought she went with mom. You get home, say, say where's Lauren? Well, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't know. Then, then you get to accuse each other. So you can imagine they're saying as they're. As they're doing the day's journey back, why didn't why didn't you ask for where he was? Well, why didn't you ask where he was? 
So they went, so they went a whole day without, you know, they're not even concerned. He's, he's with the group. He's, you know, we've got this big group that's traveled, you know, everybody in Nazareth that has made the trip to all the relatives are all together. You know, it's like a moving party, you know. You know, you can imagine. It's like a moving festival. You got all the relatives together and all the kids together and everybody's playing and talking and everything. And they're just this moving journey to Jerusalem. And now they're going back to Nazareth. And they're just a bunch of people and there's a bunch of kids, there's a bunch of, bunch of noise. They just say, well, he, you know, he's here. He's just with the skipper kids, you know. He's with the group somewhere. And so they go a day and they miss him. Then they panic. And it's, that's a panic. There's no panic like turn around and realizing your child is missing. It's, a, it's, it's unbelievably frightening that you just for a second you turn and think, Where, where'd they go? Where'd they go? And sometimes it may take you a few minutes to find them. It's terrifying because of all the things we've heard. So they, so they head back to Jerusalem. It's a day back. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple. So it's probably not, we don't know if it's three days in, they got back to Jerusalem. It took them three days to find him. But you can imagine, I bet everybody that had, from Nazareth went back to find him, you know. And Bob's saying, I got to go back to work. And the mom says, we're going back to look. Okay, well, yeah, all right, we're going back. Uh, so everybody goes back. So is it three days after they get to Jerusalem? It's probably they went out a day, they went back a day, and it took them a day. And they would use the term a day for any part of a day. Like if it took them 10 hours to find him or 18 hours to find him, it was still a day. It was still the third day. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And we're probably not surprised about that, that he would have good answers. <laughs> and good questions. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, and you can, you know, can you kind of catch a little bit of tone here? Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously. That word anxiously means literally in pain. We have been pained looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I mean... But they did not understand the statements which he made to them. I mean, you know, at some point, I'm, I think Jesus is thinking, hey, mom, you, th- you think they ever told him about his miraculous birth? I mean, you think they ever said, hey, uh, your birth was a little different. How? How so? Well... Mom got pregnant by God. What? I mean, you know, maybe that's one part of the story they left out. Maybe they're like, oh, I don't know how to tell him this. I don't know how to say this. But how about his name? How did he get his name? 
He got his name because an angel said to Joseph, Joseph, don't be fearful that Mary is pregnant because she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She's going to have a child and you shall call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. He probably at some point heard, hey, why, did the, why am I called Jesus the Savior? They ever hear about the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and the gifts and even Simeon and Anna at the temple when they went to the temple, how when he was presented that Simeon said, now I can die because he had had a promise from God that he wasn't going to die until he saw the, the hope, the consolation of Israel. And now he says, when he takes, he takes Jesus from her arms as an infant and says, okay, prays over him and says, now I can die because I've seen the hope of Israel. I've seen the Christ. Then Anna prays, very similar prayer at the same time. I mean, so there's been these miraculous, these amazing things. So what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, Mom, I'm not just your son. Dad, I also have another father. You're my dad, but I have a father. He says, I'm being pulled. He said, I'm here at the temple, and I feel the pull towards my heavenly Father's work. I must be about my Father's business. I feel the tug. You know what that tug is? I know it is actually the literally, what Christ begins to feel feel at that moment is the tug that's going to pull him to his death. It is the tug of the redemption story. Christ came to save sinners. And the only way that he was going to save sinners was not just through his life, but through his death. And what he feels as a 12-year-old is the destiny of God pulling him towards the cross. I must be about my father's business. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He respected and honored his parents. He just, go, you know, he's got this, he feels this tug for his eternal destiny. And yet his mom says, we got to go back. To Nazareth, and he goes, well, okay, well, that's, you know. And he's there, as far as we can tell, he's there for another 18 years. Growing in favor with God and man. He's growing in an understanding. He's, he's growing in understanding who he is and his role. And he's, God is preparing him for that role. And, uh, but think about that. At 12 years old, he has, a, he has a great understanding of what God's called him to do. And he doesn't do it for another 18 years. Now, here's one of the things that I've learned in my life, and maybe you're learning this. Sometimes the hardest times in life are living in the gap between where we are now and where we believe God has called us to be. 
what we believe is going to be the fulfillment of promise or destiny or purpose, whether, you know, is living in where we are now, where, you know, living as now, between now and then, that waiting period is sometimes very difficult. How many of you are good at waiting? Anybody? I just, I'm horrible at it. I, and I have a spiritual gift uh, that if I pull up to the driving at the bank, the person in front of me is cashing in pennies or something. It's like, what? Uh, it just takes forever. Or, you know, you think, and so you pull up at the grocery store and you look at the lines and you're trying to figure out, okay, that's best, which is the best one here? Uh, oh, too much, way too much. No. no. Oh, no. Coupons, never. Never. Not getting behind coupons. And so you pick a line and the coupon person beats you out every time. You think, ah, I chose poorly again. Most of us don't like waiting of any length of time. I mean, you know, you're impatient with two minute popcorn. So that, that, that gap, sometimes the gap is hard for us, the gap. And one of my favorite stories about that is the story of the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul was not always the Apostle Paul. He was Saul, and he was an enemy of the church. And he was doing everything that he could to destroy the church. Now, Jesus has ascended to the Father. The New Testament church is beginning. It's getting a good footing. Thousands of people are coming to Christ and Paul, and because most of those early converts were nearly all Jews, they were still a part of the Jewish community. Paul, being a Jew, got letters from the Jewish authorities to persecute those Jewish Christians. And he was doing a good job of it. He was dragging them off to, to prison. Some people are, are dying because of their faith. And Paul is doing everything that he can to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, and one day he's on the way to Damascus and he encounters the living Christ. The living Christ says, Paul, what are you doing? Literally, he says, Paul, what are you up to? And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. There's something happening in Paul's heart. He knows that he's wrong, but he's not willing to change direction. He's feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Where the conviction of the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to, buddy, it's time for you to turn around. You ever feel that? Just me. Okay. Everybody else in here is lost. All right. Well, that changes the ending of this sermon. Uh, but that's a typical thing that God works in our life where God b- brings conviction into our heart and says to prepare us to change. And so he interacts. So the living Christ calls him and says, I've chosen you as a vessel. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And he's blinded. And then, you know, he goes off and he's, he can't see. And, and Ananias comes in, prays for him. And the scales fall off his eyes. Ananias says, you know, God says to Ananias, I want you to go pray for, for Saul. And he's like, no way, no way. This guy's persecuting the church. And, and, and he says, Hey, this guy's chosen to be a special vessel to me. I want you to go pray for him. He goes, pray for, pray for him. He gets his sight back. And so he just has this tremendous ministry open up. So man, he, he's, in, he's in Jerusalem. He starts, he starts preaching the gospel everywhere. He, he goes in the temple. He's arguing with, with them about 
from the Old Testament why Jesus is the Christ and he's convincing people and he's causing all kinds of problems. It's called, and so many problems that they sneak him out of Jerusalem and send him to Tarsus, which where he's from. They send him back home. And he sits there for six years. After six years, the church in Antioch begins to grow, and there's so many people coming to Christ. They send Barnabas to check out and see what's happening, and Barnabas says, man, we need some help here, and he goes to get Paul in Tarsus, and he brings him back to Antioch, and that begins Paul's missionary journeys. Paul has been at least six years, maybe longer, sitting in Tarsus doing nothing. You think, wait a minute, didn't God just call me? God said, hey, I'm going to send you the Gentiles, and then you go and sit and wait for six years. And that's hard for most of us. Waiting between the promise and the realization of the promise. Between what we believe God's told us to do and it happening. Between what we want and the realization of it. And here's what you have to learn in the midst of that. There's a lesson in that, and that is this, is that waiting is not a waste when you're in the will of God. You can't waste time in God's will. It, may, it doesn't mean it doesn't feel like a waste of time. It was not a waste of time for Paul. Paul God was preparing Paul for the intense ministry that he was going to have over the next several years. It wasn't going to be a long-term ministry. He was, he, was, uh, he was killed for his faith by Nero. But God was preparing him. God got him ready for a white, he just like had this white hot ministry for a short period of time. God was preparing him for that. It wasn't a waste of time. But when you're in it, it feels like a waste I mean, even preparation can feel like a waste. Going to college can feel like a waste. Education can feel like a waste. Getting a job that's not the job you want, but that's a, a, that's a you know, uh, I'm not going to starve to death job. Can feel like a waste because it's not what, it's not what you prepared for. Sometimes you're struggling with, I feel like I'm wasting time, but it's not a waste of time if you're in the will of God. So the important thing you have to determine is not, is this a waste, but am I where God wants me? Is this God's will? Because sometimes in the will of God, God puts you in difficult places. Jesus waited from 12 to 18 to begin his ministry. That's... That's a pretty long gap. So I got to stop some two things. Let's stand. And we'll pray about them. I want us, I want us to be authentic people. And in that authenticity, we're able to convey our faith to our family, our children, 
the people outside of our families that don't know Christ, our family members who don't know Christ, that there's, there is an authenticity about that we're not just talk. Because that's, that's deadly. But that we are authentic in how we're living our faith. That doesn't mean you're going to live your faith perfectly because you're not. But your, your children need, even need to see you admitting when you've messed up. I didn't do that very well, kids. That's not, what, that's not the way I want to live. Authentic Christianity. And some of you are in a waiting time today. You're between, like Jesus, between 12 and 18, you're waiting. And you feel like you're wasting time. And you just, just need that assurance from God. God, that you're where God wants you to be right now. Waiting's not wasted when you're in the will of God. So let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to be authentic believers. That through our authenticity, through our being the genuine article, that we will be able to effectively convey our faith, not just to the generation around us, but to people around us that don't know you. That we will be an authentic representation of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we're weak and we struggle, but Lord, help us in the midst of that to demonstrate what it means to follow Christ in such a way that other people will want to follow. And Lord, help us. There's people here today that are in the midst, they're waiting, they're, they're in a, a waiting time, and, and it feels like a waste. It feels like they're wasting time. Lord, help them to understand that they can never waste time when they are in your will. Help them to have clarity, Lord, about your will and purpose and timing in their life. In Jesus' name.